what we're going to be doing here, Wednesday nights, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm just super excited for this journey. We're going to be going through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, at a very rapid rate. And we're really looking just to kind of get um, a, a fresh perspective, but to you know, look at things from a bit of a different perspective, right? Typically at Riverside here, we teach you the Bible verse by verse. And Lord willing, at the end of this year, we will have gone through the whole of the Bible verse by verse. And uh, we're excited for that. But on these Wednesday nights, we're going to look uh, at things a little bit differently. We're going to be cruising at this altitude of 30,000 feet, the height you typically travel at when flying on a commercial airline, all right? And you look down and you just begin to see uh, a much bigger picture as to what's going on. In fact, I'm quite amazed when I'm flying in an airplane, the things that I look down and see that I didn't realize were there when I'm very familiar with that area, even flying out of YVR, out of Vancouver, and you hit that sky, and you start looking down, and you're realizing, I didn't know that was there. I didn't know that was over there. And suddenly you start seeing things from a different perspective. Sometimes, you see, we can miss the forest for the trees, right? We are looking so closely at things that sometimes we forget or fail to see the big picture. And that's the desire here for us on Wednesday nights is to go through the Bible with a bit of a big picture mentality. And so we're going to be cruising through it from a much greater height at a much greater speed and looking to see just kind of this great interwoven picture that God has put in his word, this scarlet thread that weaves through every single book of God's word. And so that's what our desire is here these nights on Wednesday nights. Now the Bible, you see, is a very unique book because the Bible has that big picture quality to it. Now, if you were to look at things on a horizontal level, right, uh, just our own perspective on a horizontal level, you'll find that knowledge is acquired by two sources, reason and experience. We think about things, we reason, we learn through our experiences, but all of that would be very limited without another level, and that would be the vertical level. And on that vertical level, you see, we begin to have things answered for us that we don't get answered on the horizontal level. Things like, why am I here? How did I get here? What's the purpose and the meaning of life? And it's there on that horizontal level that we begin to get a new source of understanding, and that is through revelation. And that has two sources to it, general revelation and special revelation. It's given to us by God. God's general revelation comes to us through his creation, the universe, biology. You see all the handiwork all around us. And when you observe these things, you begin to see the, the handiwork of God. But then God also has given us this special revelation, and that's revealed through his word, the Bible. And you see, the Bible holds for us all the answers to humanity that we're not always going to get on the, on the horizontal level, that we're not always going to get just through our own reason and experiences, but the Bible begins to fill it all in for us. You see, the Bible is more than a history book. It's his story. It's all about God. More importantly, it's history of redemption that again gets woven through each book. And as we tour through it, 
We want to look at these highlights. We're going to look at, you know, the key themes of each book, key people, key doctrines, special events, important things that are going on, all to give us this great overview of his story, of God's story. Everything in the Bible ultimately points to one person and to two events. That person is, of course, Jesus Christ. And those two events are his first coming and then his second coming. Everything is ultimately pointing to Jesus and to one of those two events. His first coming dealt with the issue of sin. All right? His second coming will be to establish his permanent and physical reign with those who have been cleansed from sin. And the book of Genesis is the very foundation. That's where we're going to be starting here today. All right? The book of Genesis, and we're going to go through Genesis to Revelation, and we're going to get into the first part of Genesis and cover it over a two-week period here. But Genesis is the very foundation for everything. If we don't get Genesis, we're going to be a little bit lost on the rest. Genesis is, in fact, really the book of beginnings. That's what the, the Hebrew name Bereshith means. It means in the beginning, right? Now, the term Genesis in our English use has the idea of origin or source. And the book of Genesis definitely gives us the origin or the source for pretty much everything. The book of Genesis deals with the origin of creation, the world, life, sin, marriage, family, cities and culture, government, redemption, and the Hebrew nation. It's the book of beginnings for obvious reasons, right? Yet, the book of Genesis, interestingly, doesn't give us the origin of God. Why is that? Because God has no beginning. And for that matter, no end. Hallelujah for that, right? Aren't you glad that there's no beginning, but there's no end with the Lord? Things just keep going with him. So Genesis simply starts off with those well-known words, in the beginning, God. He was just there. There was nothing before God. In the beginning was God. God, the author of the Bible, does not try to prove or argue his existence. It's simply a matter of fact or a presupposition. Now listen, if, if you were to write your own autobiography, or just if you were to write a book, would you feel like you need to go out to prove your existence? Or just say, listen, my name's on the cover. I'm the one that wrote the book. Just accept that. You don't have to try to prove your existence. Well, in the same way, God's not trying to prove his existence at all with us. It's given as a matter of fact but you also need to approach god and receive who he is through faith in fact it tells us in hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3 and then i'll I'll add on verse 6 it says this now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen for by it the elders obtained a good testimony by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of god so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible but verse 6 without faith it is impossible to please him To please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of all those who diligently seek him. Oh, I love that verse. We need to come to him by faith. Now, as we go through this book, we're going to be breaking down the book of Genesis, like I said, over two weeks, and we're going to be looking at it in two parts. First of all, we're going to see four key events, chapters 1 to 11, and then we're going to see four events key people in chapters 12 to the end of the book chapter 50 here's those four key events the formation right god's creation chapters one and two the fall chapter three to five not fall season but you know the fall of man because of sin we're going to see the flood 
Chapter 6 to 9, then the fallout from rebellion in chapters 10 to 11. And then we're going to see four key people next week. And those are, of course, the men that really were instrumental in the beginning of that great nation of Israel. We'll talk about why God selected a nation like or made a nation out of these people. We'll talk about why. But we're going to be seeing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. There's much written about Joseph. And so we'll look at that next week. Basically, what happens here for us in the book of Genesis is we go from creation to a nation. From creation to a nation. Now, Moses is, of course, agreed to be the author of Genesis, though he's not mentioned in the book of Genesis. He didn't exist during that time period of the book of Genesis, but he's the author of it. He's the author of the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, or as Hebrew people would often refer to as the Law of Moses, all right? So Moses is the author here. And the book of Genesis is going to cover a span of about 2,300 years. Listen, there's about 4,100 years of recorded Bible history, all right? All the way up until the New Testament, the spread of the gospel in the, in the book of Acts and, and everything. We see from the beginning to there about 4,100 years. So that means that Genesis deals with over one half of recorded Bible history. So there's a lot of space that we're seeing covered just in the book of Genesis alone. Well, you guys ready to get into it? I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we've got several right in the back. And um, I don't know someone... Okay, if you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand? Because our dear brother David is going to bring you one right where you're sitting. If you need a Bible, hold up your hand. Nobody's going to look menacingly towards you. Um, but if you need a Bible, raise your hand because you're going to have one delivered right to you so we can follow along. Genesis chapter 1. Now, of course, we know Genesis 1 details God's creation. Let's read through these first five verses just to get us started here. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So here we see now God simply bringing about his creation. All right? Now, interestingly, Herbert Spencer was this guy that categorized everything. He said, everything in the universe that can be knowable could be placed into one of five categories. Does anybody know what they are? Time, force, action, space, anybody? And matter. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Listen, if, if this guy, you know, Herbert Spencer just read the Bible, he would have seen that this is what's already presented in the very first verse. Because we've got time in the beginning. Time. We've got a force. We've got God. We've got action through God's creation. We've got space, the heavens, matter, the earth. The Bible, you see, has it all covered. And like I said, if you can believe that first verse of the Bible, then you're not going to have much of a problem with anything else that we're going to come across later in God's word. In the beginning, God created. Now, we see great evidence for that all around us. It shouldn't be an issue for us. Yet it's that first verse that has been largely questioned. Evolution has been such an attack on God and his word. Because if you can buy into evolution, then you don't need to buy into God, right? And if there's no God, then we have no one that we need to answer to. 
People love evolution because they want to be their own boss. They want to be the ones that can say, I don't need to answer to anybody. I'm not here because I have a creator, a maker. I don't need to be accountable to anybody. People love evolution because they just get to call their own shots and there's no real purpose for life, if that be the case. But even evolutionists will eventually run into a problem with what started it all. Where did the original cell come from? Where did original life come to be? Even Richard Dawkins has said, well, you know, tracing it back far enough, sure, there might be some kind of, you know, intelligent being out there in the universe that eventually got the... But you've eventually got to come to some point of creation, a force, and that's God. It's the only reasonable answer, I believe, that we have. And it's there for us in God's word. And notice we see right off the beginning here, the allusion to the Trinity. Because it says in verse 2, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in creation, we have all the persons of the Godhead active and participating. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I think that is so interesting and so cool. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Who's the Word there in John 1? It's Jesus Jesus present with him in creation. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 is back set up for by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things and in him all things consist. Listen, if you ever heard that Jesus was a created being, well, the Bible will say otherwise. Jesus was active in creation. He was there in the beginning and all things are consisting because of him. There in Genesis 1 verse 26, if you skip down there, what do we hear God saying? Let us make man in our image. Who is God talking to? Let us make man in our image. Would it be angels around him? Well, no, that angels didn't have a part in creation. They're a created being. That's again a reference to the Trinity, you see. And how does God do the creating? I love that. It's just through the spoken word. Just through the spoken word. There is power in the word of God. And this word for create is the Hebrew word bara, which means to create out of nothing. All right? This isn't God who is creating using materials that are already out there present somewhere. Like for us, when we create something, we're not creating something bara like what God did here in Genesis 1. We're we're reassembling things from other materials that we have to make something new. But it's with pre-existing materials already. We don't do the creating like what God does here. God creates out of nothing. That's power. That's amazing there. Notice God's first words there in verse 3. Let there be light. You see, this is exactly what God desires to do in each of us. He wants to bring us out of darkness and bring him into his marvelous light, for God is light. It tells us in John 12, verse 46, I have come, Jesus says, as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Understand, God's first words, that there be light, and God's very desire for each and every one of us that we be brought out of darkness that sin has kept us in and be delivered from that forgiven so that we can be walking in the light as he is in the light so the six days of creation are given all right now interestingly let me just share this here 
day one, of course, we know God created the heavens and the earth. Then he begins to, you know, separate um, the firmaments, divide up the waters and all. He begins to do all these things. The first three days were all forming, right? They're forming everything. But then what happens in the next three days? The Lord is filling all those spaces, right? Earth, space, time and light, day one. So on day four now, he fills it with the sun, moon, and stars. In day two, he's got the atmosphere. But now on day five, he fills it with birds up in the air, fish in the sea. He separated the the waters, you know. Day three, he created the dry land and plants. Day six, he fills it with land animals and man. So in those first three days, he puts everything, he forms everything. The next three days, he fills everything. I think that's so cool. And that's what the Lord would desire to do with each and every one of us again, just to fill us with more of who he is. Not just forming us and leaving us, he wants to fill us. Now, of course, the creation of man on the sixth day is a unique one. Because man is created in the image of God. Like we saw already in verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he created them differently than the rest of the animals in creation because he says there in verse 26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this means that human life has intrinsic value. We're created in the image of God according to his likeness. There's, there's intrinsic value well beyond just the experiences of life. Man is created differently than animals. And unlike the animal kingdom, we're created with a, a personality, with morality, with spirituality. Like God, we're a triune being. Body, soul, and spirit. Many believe this is what God means in our, created us in our image. We're not just created by God, we're created to be in fellowship with God and being made in the image of God allows us to do that. We have a natural countenance to look upwards, to express worship and awe of God. You don't see the animal kingdom, you don't see a dog going to his, his, his bowl of food, bowing his head before he eats and starts thanking God for it. We don't see that built into the animal kingdom, but with man, there's that innate desire to be worshipers. And it's only fulfilled in relationship with God. There are a lot of people today that are trying to fill that through worshiping other things. But it's only filled, it's only satisfied when we come into right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, and we follow in worship of Him. So God ended these six days by declaring man's dominion over all the rest of creation. So chapter 2 Now, what happens in chapter 2? We see that God rested on the seventh day. Look at verse 1, chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his works, which he had done, his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, This is not to imply, when God rested, this is not to imply that God was wiped out, God needed a break, that God's sitting there saying, where's my lazy boy, man? Six days of creation, that takes a toll, let me tell you. Let me rest. No, this idea of resting was not a a need for rest. This was God declaring that the work was complete, finished, and that God was satisfied in the work done. So God rested. This is what is meant by this here. 
There was nothing left to do. And that now set up this principle of six and one and this Sabbath rest. Now listen, we're not required to keep a Sabbath as Israel was called to do because this Sabbath rest is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he has finished the work for us that we might rest in him always. It says in Hebrews 4, verse 9 to 11, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, speaking of Jesus, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The author of Hebrews is writing to a people, a Hebrew people that were getting caught up in the law, caught up into the system of religion that they felt they needed to follow still. But the author is trying to tell them, listen, it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself died, he rose again, and he sent to the Father where he is sitting at the right hand. Sitting is a position of what? Rest. It's not a position of work. The work is done. Jesus has completed it for us so that we now can experience a rest in him. Always. He now becomes our Sabbath rest because the work is complete. We're not striving, laboring to try to be right with God. It's done in and through Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, this pattern of six and one, it's an important one for us to see. If we're just going, 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 working, working, working physically without a day of rest, well, we're not going to survive. So God sets this example, I believe, for us, not as a heavy thing, but as a healthy thing. This is not an obligation or a legalistic thing. This is something that is going to be for your own health and vibrancy in life. Chapter two now goes through some review of creation, right? It kind of fills in some of the things that was already ran through in chapter one. That was kind of a popular Hebrew way of teaching. They would lay out a principle and then go back and amplify it. Jesus did that similarly in his teaching. So moving through chapter two, we see a few more accounts of creation that God did. And we see that God, look at verse eight, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see that God made a garden. He put man there. And in that garden were two trees, specific trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Everything in the garden was there for Adam's enjoyment except for that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now you might ask, why God would you do this? You put a do not touch sign somewhere, what are people going to do? They're going to want to touch it. You put a wet paint sign, what are people going to do? I better check that. They want to see. They want to challenge those signs. We all love, it's kind of built in us where we want to kind of cross the line. We want to test those things out. So now you go, God, why would you put a tree like this there? Well, This tree played an important role because God gave Adam the option to obey him or to disobey him. And without an option, if there's no choice, then God could never really have his creation entering into a true loving relationship with him. Understand something, people. Love demands a choice. Without choice, there's not a true loving relationship there. And God didn't 
design or desire to just create a bunch of robots that had no other choice but to follow him. He could have easily done that. It would have been a lot easier in the long run for God. But that's not what God, God desired to enter into a relationship with those that chose to walk in obedience and into a relationship with him. And he wanted there to be a loving relationship, a reciprocal loving relationship. So God had to provide a choice for man, whether they were going to follow God and obey him or choose to walk away and disobey him. This is why that tree exists. As much as we go, why God? It would have been so much easier without that tree. There has a purpose for it. Now, the next key thing that we see in this chapter is that God is supplying Adam with a helper. Now, with all of God's creation, he said, it is good, right? But then God looked out and he saw Adam alone and he said, this is not good. To which all the ladies say, amen, yeah, we get that. Man alone, this is not good. And that's what God saw. So God puts him into a deep sleep and provides for him a wife right from his side. A picture of how they were to be partnering together in life side by side. And God gives some great simple rules or instructions for this first wedding and marriage. It's right there at the end of chapter 2 verse 24. Read that with me. It says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In that verse We have three key words or three key thoughts. Leave, cleave, and weave. Leave, cleave, and weave. A couple, you see, God says, is to leave their strongest of former relationships, which was the the family unit. In that day, very strong. Huge respect for the, the parents. But now, the Lord says, you're to leave that. You're to leave that. And, and so too in marriages, oftentimes there hasn't been a leaving of former things. There's been a tie to other things that have not allowed the husband and wife to be joined together. And that's the next thing that God says. They're to leave so that they can cleave together. And the idea of this word cleave is this idea of really gluing together, being cemented together. They're to be cleaved together so that they will never be separated again. You take plywood, for instance, and how is plywood formed? It's formed by gluing sheets of wood together, one upon another, so that you build up this plywood, and you would never go, you know, that's a little thick for me. I'm going to just remove one of those layers. You could never do it. It would just break, splinter, shatter. It would leave a mess. And sadly, that's what happens in marriages so often where they think things aren't really working out. You know what? We're just going to part ways. But God has designed the two to cleave together, to be joined together, glued together in a sense. And when you break apart, you're not just breaking up and becoming those whole units again. You're a fraction of what you once were. That's why divorce is so messy and painful and hurtful. And not only are they to leave and cleave, but they're to weave their body, soul, and spirit together and to become one flesh. Now, the majority of conflict in marriage is because of people trying to figure out what flesh they're going to be. Let's be me. No, we're going to be me. No, It's not trying to figure out which one we're going to follow. It's joining together and becoming one flesh where you are now, again, forming a new bond together. But if you can get these things nailed down, there's a lot of blessings that flow from marriage. 
primarily it's there in verse 25. And they are both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So great blessings that come in, in marriage. We'll leave it at that right there. Okay. All right. This is a stiff crowd here today. All right. Loosen up, people. Okay. I was hoping for an amen there, but maybe not. I was hoping my wife would amen that. But no, I'm going to be hearing about that later, I think. Okay. Chapter 3. We've seen the formation. Now we get into the fall. Dun, dun, dun. Chapters 3 to 5 detail the fall for us. Now, chapter 3, interestingly, is one of the three great third chapters of the Bible. The others are there in John's Gospel and in the book of Romans, John 3.16. Romans 3, detailing again sin, but also the redemptive work of God. In each of these chapters, there are these three R's. Ruin, redemption, and regeneration. Now, this chapter opens up with the serpent coming to deceive Adam and Eve, and Eve in particular. Now, though it's not expressly stated here, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that this serpent is the devil, Satan. The question is, where did he come from? Well, Satan, we have to understand, was once a very high-ranked angel. Ezekiel gives us some insight. It's found in Ezekiel 28 Verse 11 to 15, and it says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were, check this out, the anointed cherub. We're talking more than just a king. We're talking about this angel, Satan. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fire stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity is found in you. Isaiah Chapter 14 sheds some more light on this because in chapter 14 of Isaiah, we have these great I am statements of, of Satan who is desiring to be worshipped as God was worshipped, to be exalted even higher. Satan became filled with pride. He tried to usurp the glory of God. And so God had to punish him. He was perfect until the day you were created, till iniquity is formed in you. So Satan was obviously cast down, believed to take a third of the angels with him, who are now fallen angels, demons, and Satan is on the prowl right now, roaming the earth, looking to see who he can turn away from God's ways to follow his own ways, which is just simply walking in rebellion to God and eventually leading straight to hell. Satan, I believe, knows his future destiny and he's only looking to bring as many people with him as possible. So he approaches Eve and notice it says there in chapter 3, right at the beginning there, that he was more cunning than any beast. More cunning than any beast. That idea means to be cunning is that he's crafty, he's sly or, or subtle, right? Satan doesn't come blatantly as his enemy we think of Satan always, you know, with, with horns, a pitchfork, dressed in red, where he shows up and it's like, oh, Satan. Okay, yeah, you're very recognizable, right? Satan doesn't always come that way. He's cunning. He's sly. He's going to come. In fact, 
Paul tells us in, in, I think it's 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, that he can transform himself as an angel of light. Many believe that he perhaps was appearing that way here in the Garden of Eden. He's a master deceiver. And we need to be on guard. Because there are things that might come that seem like it's of God, but you have to line up with God's word and we'll see how that takes effect here in this dialogue. But why does he target Eve? Perhaps, well, we know that she wasn't there when God gave the instructions to Adam about the trees. Maybe Adam didn't do a very good job of passing on those instructions to Eve and Satan perhaps is aware of that. Thinks this will be an easy target for me. Nevertheless, notice how he begins to plant the seed of doubt. He says to Eve in verse, um, oh, let's see now here. Oh, right right in verse one. (laughs) He said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice how he plants that seed of doubt. Did, Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Is that really true? Is that the same way that Satan would love to plant the seed of doubt when we read something to make us think, is that really for you? Is that, is that really for today? Is that really something you can count on? Satan would love to plant that seed of doubt in your mind. He did that with Eve. He's always going to try and make you question or doubt God's word. And so we have to be on guard from the enemy's lies and trickery. He is the father of lies. And he's at work today looking for anyone he can devour. First Peter 5, 8 tells us that. Now Eve's problem <laughs> was that she entered into a dialogue with Satan. Like it, it, if you hear those thoughts of, of doubt, questioning God's word, don't dialogue with it. You need to shut it out. You need to get away from it. You need to run if that's what you need to do. But not only did Eve talk to Satan... She stayed where she was in Adam. Seemed to really not be much help here. Didn't do much about it. Now this day here marked the beginning of what the Bible calls the world. It's a term used especially in the New Testament to describe this system of thinking and behaving that opposes God. God establishes his creation, the physical world, and he called it good. But now Satan intruded with his modus operandi, the spiritual world of deception and destruction. Satan came to commandeer God's world and Adam handed him the title deed. It's a significant point right here. Eve fell to that threefold temptation that's recorded for us there in 1 John 2.16. When it talks about the world and the temptation of this world, the lust of the flesh, she saw that this was good for food, lust of the flesh. She saw this was pleasant to the eyes as 1 John 2 tells us. It was the lust of the eyes. And 1 John 2 talks about the pride of life. She saw this as a tree desirable to make one wise, right there in verse 6. Saw this tree was good for food, right? Lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. She fell to the same temptation that Satan uses today at work in this world. And so Adam and Eve, they took the bite. And sure enough, everything changed from that point on. This is where all the problems, pain and pressures of life originate from. With this act, Adam became that federal head for all mankind. We now are born 
with a sin nature. We're all S-I-N positive. That's our condition today. No matter how much you might think, no, 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 that's not, that doesn't affect me. It does. We're born into that. Now we can all look at this and get a little bothered thinking, how can one man ruin it for all of us? You ever think that? Why do I have to be responsible for Adam's sin? Why do I have to fall prey to Adam's sin? Well, in the same way that God allowed that sin of one man to affect or infect the whole of the human race, so too God could provide a remedy through one man that would be effectual for the whole of the human race. And that was through Jesus Christ, who now becomes our federal head for forgiveness and redemption and atonement. Jesus would come and pay the ultimate price for sin, which was death. And he'd pay the price for that so that we all could be forgiven and brought into a right relationship with God. Yeah, one man ruined it for all of us, but one man can fix it for all of us. Praise the Lord for that. That I didn't have to do the work to redeem myself from that sin. I just needed faith in one man, Jesus Christ, who did it for all of us. Praise the Lord. So notice what God does here, right? We see God now. They, they take the bite. Adam and Eve recognize that they're naked. They, right away, things changed. They realize there's, there's guilt involved here now. There's, there's shame. And God begins to call out to them. Look at verse 9. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, you might wonder, God, what, what's going on? Did you, did you like lose them? Like, are they really that good at hide and seek? Are you really having a hard time finding them? Listen, God knows exactly what's going on. God knows exactly where they are. But God is drawing them into confession. God desires that each of us will come to him in repentance to acknowledge our sin, to find what we need in him, that he might forgive us. You see, what's happened? They've tried to help themselves out. They put fig leaves on them, which isn't going to be very comfortable. Fig leaves are known to be a little bit prickly, and they're putting this on some precious parts, so that's not going to be very fun, not very enjoyable. That's what religion does. What are people trying to do today? They're trying to cover themselves. They're trying to be made right with God, but they're applying the wrong things, and it doesn't leave them in any more comfort. God has something better for them. He draws them in. He says, what's going on? And they come into confession. What do we see God doing later on? It, it says in verse, um, oh boy. Let me see if I can find this here. Um, well, he provide, yeah, verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. God made something better for them, more comfortable. Where did he get tunics of skin from? From a sacrifice, an animal. This is one of those foreshadowing moments that let you in on what God has planned. That God desires to cover you and do the work for you through a sacrifice. Chapter 3 points us again to an even greater mention kind of of the gospel. In fact... In chapter 3 is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. And it's found there in chapter 3, verse 15. Look at that with me. So as God begins to dialogue with Adam and Eve for their sin and confront Satan on his actions, 
he begins to lay out the judgment that's coming their way. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, the woman's seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice if you've got the New King James Version or King James Version, I imagine would be the same. That word seed is capitalized. Paul makes mention of that seed as well. It's not just the general offspring of this woman. It's pointing to one greater than. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. And what does it say here? Oh, listen. He's going to bruise or crush your head. You will bruise his heel. Yes, Satan thought he was dealing a death blow to Jesus when Jesus eventually was put on a cross. Nails in his wrists, nails in his feet. His heel was bruised. No doubt Satan thought, this is it. We're getting it. But what that was actually doing was delivering that crushing blow to the head of Satan. That was securing salvation and victory for all of us and defeating the enemy right there on the cross. This word right here, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, foreshadows the work that Jesus would do for us. That through the offspring, through a woman would come the one that would deliver the death blow to Satan. Oh man, God's word is so good. Well, chapter 4, we continue on here. And chapter 4 introduces us now to family life. Complete with jealousy, intrigue, and murder. It's actually probably more like the first soap opera in history, we could call it. But this begins to show now the fallout from sin. So we see the two children born, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel come and they bring their sacrifices to the Lord. Cain was a farmer. So he offered up some of the fruit of the ground. Abel was a shepherd and he brought the firstborn as a sacrifice along with the fat, right? Which means more so, I think, the, the fattest one. What Abel is doing is he's bringing the, the cream of the crop, right? The best of the litter, the fattest one, the best one. That's what Abel does before the Lord. And Abel's sacrifice got accepted, but Cain's he did not. Why? Well, God looked at the quality of the offering, but he also looked at the character of the offerer. See, Cain didn't bring a, a blood offering, as was already established now as the pattern that God prescribed. He comes to just bring something that was just out of the ground. I'll bring that to you, no big deal. Abel brings a sacrifice. The best of the bunch that required blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, forgiveness of sin, Hebrews will tell us. And you see, Cain didn't respond too well at this. He got angry, right? The Lord challenged him. Look at what God says there. Um, So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Verse 6. And why is your countenance fallen? Verse 7 says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? Right? If you just follow in the prescribed manner, you'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God gives Cain a choice. Listen, you can do well. You'll be accepted. But understand, if you don't, sin is right there, lying at the door, ready to pounce ready to devour. It's the same for all of us. 
but we don't have to let it master us. But Cain didn't keep these things in check and he killed his brother Abel. It's a sad start to the sordid spin-off of sin. That's what we see in chapter 4, the first murder. Chapter 5, we get into now the family of Adam, the original Adam's family right here is in chapter 5. Okay, no, maybe not. All right. Now, there's a bunch of names written here. We're not going to just skim through chapter 5. You'll see a bunch of names there. We're not going to read through this here. But you'll notice a common theme. They'll mention somebody and you'll read, and he died. And he died. And he died. That's what you'll see repeatedly through chapter 5. That's the result of sin. Sin brings death. And we have to understand that here. There's so many people in the world thinking that, ah, you know what, I can just entertain sin, I can handle this. I can get away with this. Maybe in that day I stand before God, I'll make everything right. God will forgive me. But sin brings death. Both physically and spiritually, separation from God. And we see, here's now the results of sin entering the world. It brings death. And it's too late in the day that we die to think we're going to have an audience with God to make things right. That needs to be taken care of while we still have breath here in this life. And amazingly in chapter 5, God once more gives us a little foreshadowing of what he has planned right here in the very names that are mentioned. You may have wondered, what's in a name? Well, quite a bit according to Genesis chapter 5. Because here's the key people that are mentioned here. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And Adam, his name means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means moral. Canaan is sorrel. Mahalel, the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch, his name means teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech means powerful. And Noah means rest. Listen, when you put those all together, here's what you read. Man is appointed mortal sorrel. But the blessed God, Jesus, shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the powerful rest or salvation. That's what you get here in chapter 5 when you put the meaning of these names together. How cool is that? Right there in Genesis 5, God again gives us a little bit of a foreshadowing, a little bit of an idea of what he has planned, that his son is going to come and be the rescuer for all. That even through his death, he's going to bring a powerful rest or deliverance or salvation for us. Now, interestingly, Methuselah, let's make comment on that. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Do you know who the oldest person in the Bible was? Methuselah. He lived to be 969 years old. It's right there for us in chapter 5. Methuselah, the, old, the longest living person. But his name means his death shall bring. His death shall bring what? Well, many believe that his death, when he died, the flood came. What's in chapter 6? The account of Noah and the flood coming. But that is so interesting Because God maps it all out for them. Listen, I've got a course, I've got a plan. The world's gotten wicked and a flood is coming. But I won't do that until Methuselah dies. And guess what? I'm going to let Methuselah be the longest living person on earth. 
What does that show us? It shows us the mercy and the grace of God. Not wanting that any should perish. He's long-suffering and he's giving every person an opportunity and room and time to get right with God. Before he brings this cataclysmic global judgment upon the world, I'm going to give you time. Time to repent. Time to get right with me so that you don't have to perish in this. His death shall bring. He allows him to be the longest living person. I think that is so wonderful. Speaking of the character and the love and the mercy of God. Well, chapter 6 now. We move in to this next section. This third section we're seeing here tonight. And that is the flood. We've seen the formation. We've seen the fall. And now we see the flood. It's a period of time where God sees the ravishing destruction of sin. Look at, look at this here. It says in verse one. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, that's a sad statement right there. So God sees that there needs to be a fresh start. Things have just gotten so wicked that their thoughts were only evil continually. So he's going to wipe out mankind by a flood. But one person finds salvation and that's Noah. He spared. And notice, it says there in, in verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why is Noah spared? It's all because of God's grace. It's the only reason why any of us are saved. You think that you're saved because you've earned it, because you're good, because God just couldn't pass you by? No, it's simply because of the grace of God. Every single one of us need to daily be thanking the Lord for His grace. It's His grace that just completely changes everything and it changes us. It allows us to come into a right relationship with God. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We cannot do it. It's simply through faith in Jesus. It's by grace you are saved through faith. Not of anything else so that nobody can boast. It's only by grace. Every single one of us daily need to be thanking the Lord for grace. And Noah found that grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now let me back up a little bit here. God says that man's days would be 120 years, verse 3. 120 years. Some people believe that that's speaking of the lifespan of man. Some believe that that's speaking of the amount of time that now uh, it'll be until the flood when, when he speaks that. That again, he's giving them time. All right? 120 years and then it's going to be curtains basically. Now, there's quite a period of time that's happened up until now, right? Uh, there's been a great period of time that's happened from all that genealogy of Adam until now the days of, of Noah. And remember, people were living long periods of life in that time. Now, it's believed, we didn't get into this at creation, but it's believed that the earth was created with this kind of, uh, uh, of canopy over top of the whole world, this water canopy, making the conditions of the earth this universal climate, and a, a tropical climate at that, right? Where everything globally around the world was just this nice greenhouse effect where just palm trees everywhere. Up in, up in the Arctic, palm trees growing, everything's just like Hawaii. Wouldn't that be great? See, up until this time, it's believed that 
they didn't even see rain. In fact, it tells us in, in Genesis um, chapter 2, verse 6, that a mist came up from the ground and watered everything. That was God's, you know, kind of in-ground sprinkler system that just kept everything fresh. A mist came up from the ground and watered everything, Genesis 2, 6. No rain came. Perfect climate conditions. And people live long lives because you're not getting the sun's UV rays coming in or the damaging rays that affect us in our health. People are protected from that with this water canopy. So people are living long lives. What does that mean? It means that the population was booming, right? It came to pass when men began to multiply, it says, chapter 6, verse 1, multiply. So there's a great expansion of the population taking place in this day. And it's interesting that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As the days of Noah were. How were the days of Noah marked? Well, population expansion. Heavy wickedness going on. Many people believe demonic activity. I've kind of skipped over a couple interesting verses in, in verses 2 to 4 that we're not going to get into a lot because many people debate, you know, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, took them for wives. Suddenly there's giants in the land. What's going on? Some people believe that the sons of God were actually a reference to angels or more so fallen angels, demonic beings that entered into relationship with the daughters of men and created this hybrid kind of people where just wickedness is going on. Now, that's a theory that's out there. I'm not saying that's what it is. That's a theory. And I don't even want to, I've even gone more into this than I wanted to tonight here because the big picture is this. Satan is looking at some way to corrupt the human race. That's Satan's plan. Satan's heard. There's going to come one from the woman. That's going to bruise my head. It's going to crush my head. So what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to corrupt the human race so that there won't be a person that comes. Perhaps it's through having his minions corrupting the human race through these, you know, relationships that's going on there. We don't know. If it's just natural relationships, we don't know. But somehow, maybe it's demonic men that come in. Either way, there's something strange going on. Giants on the earth. Wickedness abounding where God says, we got to reset. We got to start over here. It's gotten too much, too great. And God says, we're going to wipe this out and start over. All right? And so this is what's going on. But I bring that up just to say, don't we see a lot of parallels today? Population explosion. People, people kind of reason going through some of the numbers we see in the genealogies and, and, and whatnot in the age that people live, that the earth at the time of the flood could have been upwards of 7 billion people. And that's where we're at today. We see wickedness abounding where it seems more and more that the thoughts of the hearts of people are evil continually. We wonder how much worse can it get? And yet, Jesus says, just as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's exciting. I'm not excited about what we see going on in the world. But it's exciting to think that we could be living very much in the last days. How much we need to be ready and prepared for that. Well, so God stucks Noah. 
Noah's a righteous man, it tells us there. In verse 9, perfect in his generation, Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons. Um, and so God selected Noah as this righteous man to be the one who's going to build a boat, be spared through this flood. Now, we know the story quite well, I assume, but let me draw your attention to a couple things. God begins to give the, um, the measurements of the ark that Noah's to build out of gopher wood. The ark was as long as a 30-story building is high. It's about 450 feet or 150 meters. It was about 75 feet high or wide and 45 feet high. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. What's described is not really a boat, but a well-ventilated barge meant only to float and not to sail anywhere. We got these images of Noah's Ark that we remember from our nice flannel boards in Sunday school that look something like this. Listen, let me tell you, this is nothing like what God instructed Noah to build. In fact, Answers in Genesis, the uh, great ministry, has built a life-size ark there in Kentucky, and this is it. That's what Noah's ark would have looked like. It would have resembled more of a chest, not a ship. That, uh, that's what an ark is, right? A chest. Build an ark. That refers to this kind of vessel. And so it would have been very seaworthy. And, um, you know, many boats have been designed with a similar kind of a design, knowing that this is what's going to really be effective in the open waters. Now, Henry Morris calculates the, the volumetric capacity of the ark at approximately 1,400,000 cubic feet, which equals the functional space of 522 standard livestock railroad cars. According to John Woodmore, author of Noah's Ark, a feasibility study, this is more than adequate capacity for each paired kind of land animal, food storage, waste management, and human living quarters. And God tells Noah to build this ark with this ventilation system along the top, with the space all along to just allow things to be very... You think, how did Noah last in there? My goodness, these animals just, you know, whoa, that would, you'd be like, man, I'm, I'm like, tow me behind the boat somewhere, right? I'm going to build a raft for myself. But God designed all this perfectly here to be suitable for this function. Chapter 7, notice how Noah is instructed. Look at verse 1 with me, chapter 7. I love this. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Come into the ark. Where is the Lord? For God to say, come into the ark, where's God? He's in the ark. And he's calling Noah simply to where he is. That's what God desires for us. Because it's only in him that we find safety and salvation. God has not called us to something. He's called us to himself. Where if we are abiding in Christ, we know that we are safe and secure. So the rain came down for 40 days, 40 nights, verse 12 of chapter 7, 40. In the Bible, that number 40 represents a period of testing or judgment. Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Uh, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus himself tempted for 40 days. And so here's this picture of judgment on the earth, but also that testing for Noah and his family. Now keep in mind, this is not just you know rain that flooded the earth. Okay, notice what we read there in verse 11. 
In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep, they were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Like I said, I don't believe it had rained up until that point with this water canopy in the air. Now, the Lord says, we're going to let it pour. Not just breaking open and raining down the waters, the 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 windows of heaven or sorry the yeah the windows of heaven open but the fountains of the very deep now god's got this intricate water source all under the ground and now those just burst forth so they're getting it from both sides and it just washed everybody up drowned everybody out water came from everywhere and this truly was a global flood you know different cultures from all around they have a variation of the flood account. They have their own myths and stories of a flood account that many people say, ah, see, you know what? The Bible just simply, everybody's got some flood account. The Bible's just borrowed from these stories that abound. Well, why do they, why do all these cultures have a flood account? A story that details oftentimes a boat, a family being spared. Because this is a global flood this impacted everybody. Stories, no doubt, were passed down. And it came right from the Bible. The Bible didn't borrow this from anywhere. They borrowed it from the Bible. So this only proves to me what the Bible has said all along. Well, chapter 8, we see Noah's deliverance. We see God bringing an end to the rain and the flooding, and he has the waters recede. Noah and his family were in the ark for about 378 days altogether from when they got into the ark, and they had to sit in the ark for seven days before the water even came. Now, that takes a bit of faith, right? And everybody's walking around like going, ah, Noah, come on. Just come out already. It's not happening. Seven days from there. So from the time they entered the ark until the time they got out, walked on dry ground, 300, about 378 days. That's a long time time to be in this ark and what's the first thing that noah does well jump down to verse 20 of verse uh, chapter 8 verse 20 then noah built an altar to the lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar and the lord smelled a soothing aroma the lord said in his heart i will never again curse the ground for man's sake Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Listen, if you do have kids at Calvary Kids Club, if you want to step out and, and go and pick them up, that'd be great. And you're welcome to come back in, step in the parents' room here and, and, and finish up here with us. We'll be done soon. But here we see Noah doing something important, building an altar and offering up a sacrifice. What does Noah want to do? First and foremost, he wants to come and worship God for his goodness towards him. Noah knows that his salvation was completely dependent on God doing this for him. Oh, may we be those like Noah saying, God, I want to come and come quickly just to offer up worship and praise to you for all that you've done for me and through me. Chapter 9, we see God establishing some important roles for Noah. Noah's told to go out and be fruitful and multiply. Verse 1 of chapter 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. That's what God is telling him to do. They just inherited an earth, population 8. That'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? Walking out of the ark. There's nobody there but you and your family. 
you're going to have to get busy now and seeing that get repopulated. That'd be a bit of a surprise now. But this is what they're called to do. And they're told that every moving thing now is to be food for them. Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. And all the hunters today said, Amen. Come on. Oh, Brandon stepped out already. But Pete, you're with me. Okay, there we go. So this is it. This is it. Now, up until this day, again, many believed that they were strictly vegetarian. And that there was a different relationship with the animals. Animals were But God says that he's going to put the fear of man on every beast. Verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you will be on every beast now. So God says they're not going to be hanging out. They're not going to be easy pickings for you to go and hunt them for food. But they're there for you for food. And so God sets something new now for them. And God gives them a way to govern. Look at verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And again repeats now. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So God establishes this capital punishment. If a person took a life, it would be their life as a penalty. God establishes to show just again that value of life. Though you could hunt an animal, man is created in the image of God, created differently, and there's to be a higher value upon human life. And so God establishes this covenant now with Noah in chapter 9, and he provides a sign for it, a, a rainbow. Look at... Um, Let's see here. Verse 11. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Verse 13. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and, ev- and you and every living creature of all flesh the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is all flesh. This is the the Noahic covenant now where God provides a symbol of it in the rainbow to be a reminder that he will never flood the earth again. That doesn't mean that he will never judge the earth Again, because it tells us in Second Peter 3 that there's coming a day when God is once more going to judge the world for their wickedness. And that will come through fire. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. There are people that have laid claim to the rainbow. And you know full well who I mean. And they're hoping that this is going to secure peace for them. But there's only peace, there's only safety and security found as we align ourselves with God and with his word and walk in obedience to it. Well, last section we see now in this first part of Genesis is now the fallout from rebellion. We've seen the formation, the fall, the flood. Here in chapters 10 and 11, we see now the fallout from rebellion. Didn't take long. God started over. Doesn't take long though for man to continue on in their rebellious ways. Chapter 10 is the table of nations. We follow the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
there are 70 nations represented in chapter 10 that come from Noah's three sons that I, I just mentioned here. Look at verse 1. This is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. Now, there's a lot of people that come from these three boys of Noah. 26 from Shem, 30 from Ham, and 14 from Japheth. We see all the different kind of people groups that have come from them. Shem, we see the Semitic peoples, Jews, Arabs, Assyrians, Aramaeans, Phoenicians. From Ham came the, the Hamitic peoples, Ethiopians, Egyptians, Canaanites, Philistines, Babylonians, possibly the African and Oriental peoples. Um, Japheth, the Japhetic peoples, had the Medes, Greeks, uh, Cypriots, probably the Caucasian people of Europe and of Northern Asia. Many scholars would also include the Orientals here as well. So we see just from these three boys came all the different kind of ethnic and, and people groups that we have. And I want to draw your attention to two people specifically in this chapter. The first is Nimrod. He's mentioned in verse 8. Look at that. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar, which is the Babylonian region. And from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kelath, and resin between Nineveh and Kela. So Nimrod's the first man I want to draw your attention to here. Two nations here that he was responsible for. He built Babel and Nineveh and Assyria. The Babylonians and the Assyrians have all come from this man, Nimrod. Now Nimrod, it says that he was a mighty hunter. And the idea here regarding that is that more so he was a hunter of men's souls. That he was looking to drag people down. His name means rebel. And he certainly stands as the prototype rebel against God. Many see in him again a, a foreshadowing even of the Antichrist. And where's the kingdom of the Antichrist? It's in Babylon there again as Revelation speaks of. Revelation 17 and 18. Mystery Babylon. Where the Antichrist is ruling from. And here Nimrod is the founder of Babel or Babylon. The other name that I want to draw your attention to is found in verse 21. And it says there, And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brothers of Japheth, the elder. Eber. That's believed to be the father of the Hebrews. If you wondered, where did the Israelites get the term Hebrews from? It's believed it came from this man, Eber, who's the father of the Hebrew people, the Semitic people, the Shemites. They're the descendants of Shem, the Semitic or Shemite people. And it is this family of Shem that becomes the primary focus of the rest of Genesis. Now chapter 11, and we're going to end it with this chapter here. Now what was it that God instructed the people to do? First of all, going back to, to Genesis uh, chapter 9, verse 1. What did God instruct the people to do? Can somebody help me out here? Just look at chapter 9, verse 1 if you need to. What did God instruct the people to do? Populate the earth. Go out. Spread out. Go fill the earth. But now what do we see happening in chapter 11 here? Well, 
look at what it says there. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, verse 1. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Again, Babylon territory. Then in verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Here again, the mindset of Nimrod, the rebel, the founder of Babylon. They're in Babylon and they're building the tower of Babel for what purpose? To make a name for themselves. To reach up to the heavens, to be like God and to keep themselves from being scattered. To keep themselves from doing what God's already instructed them to do. This open rebellion against God and against his ways. So God looks down and says, come there in verse 7, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Again, a reference to the Trinity. Let us go down and confuse their language. And there the people finally began to do what God intended to fill the earth. But it was because now they couldn't understand one another and they scattered. They're all speaking different languages. And they're like, I don't know, ah, this is weird. And they got out of there. God forced that upon them. Listen, in closing here, there are two places that are named more than any other in the Bible. Do you know what they are? Yes, is one? Babylon. These two names, geographical places, are the most named geographical places in the Bible. Jerusalem and Babylon. And we're seeing this introduction of Babylon right in the very beginning of the Bible. And for the Christian life, it is all about where you are choosing to dwell. Is it Babylon, signifying rebellion towards God? Or is it going to be in Jerusalem, which is the holy city of God that we will get to soon? Revelation ends with those two cities. The Bible begins basically with these two cities, and the Bible ends with these two cities. Mystery Babylon or the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. Babel again means confusion. And indeed, if we are walking in opposition to God, things just aren't going to make sense. We're going to be confused. We're going to wonder, what, what is this all about? What's going on? Listen, there is going to be confusion and, and a dissatisfaction if you're choosing to walk in rebellion to God. That's the way of Babylon. But God has a better place for you a better way for you and that is abiding with him following him that's represented through jerusalem where are you putting your roots down today that's the question i think we need to ask ourselves as we end this study here tonight let's plant roots down in his truth in his word where he is and let's be those that are following him following him according to what his word says because that's what leads to blessing and joy and satisfaction and peace let's be placing roots down where he is and what he has for us and may that be what we experience as we go through god's word chapter 11 continues just to give shem's descendants and then introduces us to abraham at the end of chapter 11 which we'll pick up with in chapter 12 next wednesday where we are going to wrap up the book of genesis next wednesday and you're all wondering how 
I don't know, so pray for me. You've got a whole week to pray for that to happen, all right? So uh, let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to uh, begin this great journey of just traveling through your word. And I pray that this would be a very encouraging, fruitful, and blessed time for all of your people here that come. And I pray that you would make provision for me, more people to come. And we pray this would be a blessing as we seek to bless you and learn of you. So continue to teach us many things. Continue to reveal just who you are and all that you've done for us. And we thank you, God. And we pray this in your name now, Jesus. Amen.